Well, tonight we're going to be taking a look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 24 through 30 as we continue on in the Word of God in the book of Philippians. Just a note as you're turning there, um, I had asked for a copy of this, uh, copy of the ARP journal uh, to give to my parents because they had asked for it um, because my article on the Sabbath was, uh, was in at the blessing of the Lord's Day. Uh, they sent me instead of one, they sent me about... I don't know, 10 or so, um, I put them on the back. So if you are interested in that, um, please go ahead and take one with the blessings of the ARP. And do remember to, uh, to thank God for the generosity of the, uh, the Synod in sharing that with us. In the meantime, let's, uh, before we turn to the Word of God, let us go to the God who has given us this Word that guides us so well, a light and a lamp to our lives. God our Father, thank you, Lord for your faithful servants, men like Paul and Epaphroditus, who labored mightily in the faith so that we, who came generations after them, might have a word to go to, a word to study, a word to be blessed with, and a word, O Lord, to guide us all the way home to heaven. I thank you, Lord, for uh, the Apostle Paul's letter, therefore, for I know it was more than simply his letter to a congregation in Philippi. It was something meant for every Christian in every age. And, oh, Lord, I pray that we would take heart as we read it, that we would be encouraged and that we would learn this evening. Help us, oh, Lord, then, to do that. Help me to preach. I am a weak and sinful man with feet of clay. I can't hope to open up your word and expound it truly, unless you help me. And I pray that you would do that this evening. And I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Philippians chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 24 through 30. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem." Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What is, if you're a Christian, what is the Christian life to you? How would you define it? How would you think about it? What is the Christian life? It is, a, it, it is uh, something to you, but, but what? Is it, a, is it a particular tradition your family has participated in for generations? Uh, something, therefore, that is, is more of a tradition, like uh, eating Thanksgiving meal together and, and so on? Uh, is it something comforting that provides you with a circle of friends that helps you in your life? Is it a value added to your life, something that is important, but still something that is in orbit around you? Or is it absolutely central to you? And do you think of yourself more like a soldier on active duty in the army of Christ? I ask because that analogy, a good soldier of Jesus Christ on campaign uh, for the kingdom, was the way that Paul 
framed his own efforts and the way that he often described his closest companions and most ardent followers, his fellow laborers in the gospel ministry as his fellow soldiers. Now, we've already seen the way that uh, he has discussed the Philippian congregation, spoken to them uh, as the way they should be, as a family, brothers and sisters who love one another and who assist one another whenever they can. We've dwelt upon that, but now I want to dwell upon him describing Epaphroditus as his fellow soldier in the Lord, the way he calls him that here. Now, uh, there are things that we can take away from that description itself. Uh, Paul used that description, as I said, to describe other co-workers. For instance, in 2 Timothy 2.1, he wrote this, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And then as he wrote to Philemon in Philemon 1-2, to the beloved Aphia Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, living in Fayetteville, it's almost inevitable that you will become somewhat familiar with the army, even if you aren't serving in it directly or serving it in some way. But the Roman army was very different from the U.S. Army today. Uh, there was no leave, for instance, in the Roman army. You signed up and you fulfilled your entire term of enlistment without ever being able to go home and visit your family. In fact, marriage was forbidden. And uh, what the Roman legionaries would often try to do, therefore, is whenever they were garrisoned in a particular area for any period of time, they would get uh, what they called a camp wife. Uh, but eventually, the, uh, what they, they would do is they would take the legion and they would move them on because they did not want them to, as was put by the British later on, go local. In other words, become so attached with a particular region, a particular family, that their, their allegiances were transferred from the Roman army and specifically the people in the Senate of Rome and Caesar who commanded them to the local people there who their family was drawn from. So when you served in Caesar's army, you didn't stop marching. You didn't stop serving the one who enlisted you. And they weren't talking about the individual officer who enlisted you, but rather in, it was Caesar. You, you swore to, uh, uh, to serve him and the uh, uh, in the time of the Republic, of course, he swore to serve the Senate and the people, but uh, after Caesar came in, it was, a, it was a very personal thing. And you served in that organization until you were either officially discharged, and heaven help you if you lost your discharge papers. A little while ago, they found this, uh, it was actually, it was a, a wax tablet that had the discharge of a particular officer uh, and then the seal of the centurion who was authorizing that discharge. If you didn't have that discharge paper with you, two things could have happened. One, you could have been accused of being a deserter, uh, and the uh, penalties for that were very strong. Or you could be re-enlisted in the army and end up having to serve too. Now, unfortunately, whoever this poor soul was, uh, he dropped it off a bridge into a river in Britain. So they were speculating that he was celebrating his discharge a little too heartily and uh, lost it at, at some point. So that would be one way. You could be discharged after you had, after you had served uh, a certain number of years in the Roman army. Or you could be invalided out when you lost a limb, uh, which wasn't too infrequent. Or when you died. That was another way you could get out of the legions, obviously. Uh, but until that time, when Caesar said go, you went. You served without asking questions. We see an example of that kind of authority structure when 
a centurion is speaking to Jesus Christ in Matthew 8, 7. We read there, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. It was a member of his household, a a servant who had uh, become sick. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. It was an unquestioned authority. And the interesting thing is that the centurion understood that if Jesus, and he believed he was, is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he could command anything or anybody in this present world. We see, of course, Jesus issuing commands to the weather on the Lake of Galilee. Peace be still, and the storm is stopped. I don't know if we think about it often enough, but do you think of Christ as your king, the one who ultimately has authority over your life, and you as his servant? He says, go, you go. He says, come, you come. Do you think of him as in control of your destiny and with a right to rule over it and to determine where you go? Most of us, unfortunately, and it was very uh, true of me as a young man, are rebels at heart. Unfortunately, that's one of the, uh, the consequences of our descent from Adam, our first rebel father. Uh, I was so rebellious and stupid, frankly, that um, I, I remember sitting in English class one day and the teacher held up the book. This is the next book we're going to be reading. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, and I really wanted to read that. Oh. But because you're telling me I've got to, it's not going to happen now. That literally went through my head. I'm not going to read anything you ask me to read, uh, even if I want to. That was how rebellious I was. And it never redounded to my good, of course, but I continued on in it because of my foolishness and my sinfulness. But that ought not to be the case with us as Christians. It ought to be the case that we are willing, able, and even eager to serve the Lord. Uh, And and this is something that Christians have understood. They're the sense in which they are members of a mighty army. We even have hymns, don't we, that reflect that. Like a mighty army, onward Christian soldiers, and, and so on. Speaking of us like that. Now... What did it mean for Epaphroditus? And interestingly enough, his name means lovely. And as I, it was funny, when I was, when I was thinking about that, Epaphroditus' name, lovely, uh, I heard Irfan's voice in my, my head saying, and he was a lovely man, I'm sure, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, what did it mean, though, for Epaphroditus to be a soldier in the army of the Lord? Well, it meant that he served at Christ's bequest. When Christ asked him to do something, he did it. Through the church, he received his orders, and he went and did them. So the Philippian congregation had a desire to send something to Paul. They were terribly, we've already been over this, they were terribly worried about his state, and they had right to be. He was, uh, uh, he was on trial for his life. He was accused of treason. And if he'd been found guilty, the sentence surely would be death. Worse than that, he was at the moment awaiting his sentence in a Roman jail where they didn't provide for your needs. You and your friends had to provide for them. So they were very eager to make provision for Paul. Uh, And they were desperately worried that he would not get these things. They lacked the means, of course, to to send him stuff immediately. There was no Amazon. Well, there were Amazons in the Roman times, but there was no Amazon. Uh, uh, You know, you could not simply um, order something and, and have it delivered to somebody 
thousands of miles away. And so Paul, who was almost a thousand miles away in Rome, how would they get something to him? Uh, it was going to be very difficult to do so. The shortest route, I worked this out, would have been to have uh, taken the Via Ignatia, which was the road that passed through Philippi. We discussed that before. Uh, and that uh, would be about 350 miles. That would take you to a port which would allow you to cross the Adriatic Sea to Brundisium, and there you would take the Via Appia. The, the crossing was 80 kilometers, and if in bad weather, of course, you were taking your life in your hands, uh, then you would go to Brundisium and then go 350 miles up the Via Appia to Rome in the best conditions, a trip like that would take in the ancient world, traveling by foot for the most part, six weeks. That's the quickest you could do it. Three months would have been more uh, likely to, to get there. So how are they going to get this stuff to them? Well, it falls upon Epaphroditus. They send one of the ministers in the church, Epaphroditus. Um, he was almost certainly either a presbyter or a deacon, uh, and they send him to serve him. There's a word in verse 25. Uh, it's actually translated with several words in the English, ministered to my needs, but it, uh, it is liturgon in the Greek, and it literally, uh, it means uh, ministering in the ministerial office is the idea. So he's a minister who has an office, and he's been set to a, uh, to a particular ministry. He was set apart for this particular ministry, to serve Paul in whatever way that service might be needed to serve him as, for instance, his disciple and helper, as Timothy and Titus had done and, and would continue to do. He was therefore not only bringing a gift from the congregation, we should understand that Epaphroditus was the gift of the Philippians to Paul. He was a, a faithful sergeant who was sent to carry out the orders of Paul, his captain, who in turn answered to Jesus, the commander-in-chief, this was therefore a sacred service that was rendered not only to Paul, but a sacred service that was being rendered by Epaphroditus to God himself. Now, the journey to get to Paul, and then even after he arrived, implied tremendous risk. He was literally, once again, taking his life in his hands, both because of the hazards of the long journey, and because, as we, we've gone over before, Paul was on trial for treason. And to be associated with somebody on trial for treason, to be their loyal follower uh, who helped them and so on in, in Rome, that was dangerous in and of itself. He could have been arrested and charged with being a co-conspirator uh, with Paul. And we read uh, here that on his way there, Epaphroditus became sick and he almost died when he reached Rome. He was sick unto death. Now, the Philippians had uh, apparently been informed of this, and they were very worried. They knew he was sick, but they did not know that God had miraculously spared his life. Now, a lot of people at this point say, hold up. Okay, so Epaphroditus gets sick on the journey, and he's near death by the time he reaches Paul and Rome. But no problem, right? Paul says, I heal you, and suddenly, ah, I'm better, thank you. Okay, let's get on with it. Why didn't that happen? Why had not Paul, by means of, of a, mira a miracle, um, either prevented this illness or quickly healed him? Why was it that he was brought almost to death's door? And it seems like he was healed, uh, you know, 
in the same way that we just heard about uh, our, our brother being healed through the ministry of prayer and through uh, the, what we would call the, the ordinary turn of events uh, that exists within our own day within the church. And the answer is, and, and please note this, that even in that era, when they still had the gifts of the Spirit, the apostles could not perform miracles whenever they were inclined to do so. There are several times where we see someone sick who is not immediately healed by the apostles. Epaphroditus' sickness, therefore, proves that the apostles did not have ordinarily the permanent gift of doing miracles whenever they wanted any more than they had the permanent gift of inspiration and the ability to speak in an inspired way uh, all the time. It was simply not the case that you could have walked up to Paul at any moment in the day and say, hey, uh, Paul, who's going to win the chariot race next week at uh, the Circus Maximus? I, I think I've got a quick fundraiser idea for the church. Um, you couldn't have done that. That's not something the Lord would have told him. The Lord gave him his word. He mediated that through him in particular ways, for instance, in the writing of Philippians. But it wasn't all the ways the case that Paul knew what was in the future. We have read from this letter, for instance, he says not, I will be with you soon. He says, I hope to be with you soon. He says, I hope that I will be released, and so on. These were things he was praying about, but not things that he knew for, for certain. So the, the worldview of uh, certain movements within the church today, the New Apostolic Reformation, for instance, or the Word of Faith movement, that these miracles were something that was ordinary and always done, and you always have the prophetic word, and you're always speaking in tongues, and you're always healing people, and so on. That just wasn't the case amongst the apostles. And if it wasn't the case for Paul much less is it going to be the case for a pastor out in Redding, California. That just is not the way it is. So, these miracles were used to vouchsafe the fact that these men were inspired messengers of God, that they were chosen instruments. They were not there to be used helter-skelter all the time. So, Epaphroditus recovers... And he figures out that people are very concerned about him back in Philippi. And he yearns to be back, therefore, with the church that sent him. No doubt he was worried. My family probably think I've died. My friends probably think I'm, I'm dead. Uh, but in fact, I'm alive and well. And how they're suffering, not knowing. And so he goes back to Philippi. And of course, that involves a, another long journey of over 400 miles. Or more than that, sorry, almost, uh, almost a thousand. If you think your trip to church is long, uh, speak to Epaphroditus and his fellow soldiers about how long they traveled to get from church to church. So Paul decides to send him back to Philippi and to send him back with this letter uh, that we know as the letter to the Philippians. He knows, however, that there are some who, when he comes back, they're going to think he disobeyed his orders, that in essence, the soldier deserted his post. You were supposed to stay with Paul, Epaphroditus. You were supposed to stay with him until he was either released or he was put to death. We didn't send you for, for just a little while or to simply drop something off and then come back. So, Paul reassures them, no, it was on my orders that I sent him back. And give him, therefore, a cordial welcome. Give him a hero's welcome as a good soldier who risked his life and who did his duty. In fact, hold him, he says, and those like him in high esteem. 
because this man, your servant and my servant, Epaphroditus, my fellow soldier, was willing to put his life at risk for the sake of the kingdom and note that he almost lost it. He almost died for the sake of serving God. He also has a personal reason, he says, for sending him, that there would be joy in receiving him back home in Philippi, and that would take away the burden and the sorrow that Paul was feeling in keeping them in the dark about his well-being and so on. Now, there's an interesting uh, history uh, associated with this in the way that sometimes scripture can be twisted. Uh, within the early church, uh, Hendrickson writes this, hence, and hold such men in honor. He's, he's talking about uh, Paul writing that. Note such men like Epaphroditus and others like him. Uh, when Paul wrote this, he could not foresee that at a later date, men would twist these words as if a person who in any way had become a martyr for Christ must always be given the privilege of casting the deciding vote in important ecclesiastical matters. The apostle, however, was saying no more than this, namely that due respect must be shown to those who have proved themselves willing, if necessary, to surrender their lives for Christ. This implies, of course, that weight must be attached to their judgments and opinions, but not undue weight. Now, remember this. In the early church, it wasn't just the fully orthodox who were maimed, imprisoned, tortured, and murdered, or martyred. Arians, Nestorians, Donatists, and all manner of sectarians and outright heretics were imprisoned and tortured by the Romans. It is a good thing for us to respect men who are willing to hazard their life for Christ. But it would be a dramatically bad idea to give an Arian the deciding vote in uh, you know, some matter of Christology because he had lost an eye under Roman torture. Do remember that. Now, I, I do want to make an application of this to us, uh, hopefully an encouragement. Are you thinking of yourselves? Now, perhaps, even uh, if you weren't at the beginning of the, the sermon, are you thinking of yourselves as soldiers of Christ? Is that who you are, or at least who you aspire to be, who you want to be? Now, note this. Good soldiers of Christ are called to love and good works. It's often said that armies are, are kept around to kill people and break things. But soldiers of Christ, we are around to save people and to build things. That's our calling. We are to build up, not to tear down. That makes a, a big difference, um, and it, it makes me sad in some ways. We see all of these men who are very zealous for a false god and who are willing to lay down their lives for that false god and the false scriptures that his false prophet produced. I, I, I speak, of course, of the myriads of young jihadists who want nothing more than to, to strap bombs to themselves and to run into buildings and blow people up to attack uh, music uh, festivals filled with infidels, put them all to death, to rape, to terrorize, and to do so thinking that they are doing these things for good. They are serving Allah by slaying the people that their book says are no more than apes and pigs. We have an example of that that occurred. Of, I mean, we forget these things so very long ago. There was a man by the name of um, Major Nadal Hassan. He uh, was a major in the U.S. Army. He served in Fort Hood, a, a psychologist. Um, he uh, decided that he was going to become a jihadist. 
um, and follow uh, in the teachings of the Quran. He was, as they put it today, radicalized. One of the things he did, though, was he had cards printed up with his name on them, and they had the initials S-O-A underneath them. Does anybody know what that stands for? Soldier of Allah. The funny thing was he handed these out to members of the U.S. military, and nobody said, that's maybe problematic that he was calling himself Soldier Vala. Well, he uh, committed this act of, of brutal evil, shooting many of his fellow soldiers. But he felt he was doing so for God, for Allah, at least, his false god. But that story is replicated again and again and again. We have more and more men who are stepping up to do these things, eager to do so, eager to lay down their lives for a lie. And the sad thing is, and I hate to say this, within the church, we're dealing with the opposite problem. We have fewer and fewer young men willing to lay down their lives in the service of God, doing the right things, not killing people, saving people, helping people, teaching people, building churches and clinics and going to the ends of the earth. Used to be the case that uh, in, the, in the church, the example of Epaphroditus was something that people strove to emulate, willing to risk their lives for the sake of the kingdom. And therefore they copied them. There were societies of men and women uh, who called themselves Parabolina, uh, Parab oh, I'm going to get it wrong, Parabolini. Uh, which was actually the Roman word for gamblers. They, they used that word uh, as a cover. What were they actually gambling? Their lives. How were they gambling their lives? By radically serving, not to use David Platt's language, but serving the Lord with all of their heart, with all of their might, and with all of their intentionality. They ministered to the sick and the imprisoned. And uh, they saw to it, if at all possible, that those who were slain for the sake of Christ, uh, the martyrs, would receive an honorable burial. That was a very dangerous thing because often the Romans did not want them buried. They would sneak out at night and they would uh, you know, grab the bodies, wrap them in a sheet, and give them a quick grave service. That was gambling their lives. But who were they doing that for? Ultimately, they were serving God and serving the kingdom. And you saw that going on. In every age, the Lord had had his people who were willing to risk their lives, the reformers who would travel far and wide to spread the gospel, the men who printed the word and smuggled it into Europe and different nations. When these men were, were caught, men like Tyndale, for instance, often the penalty was literally being burned alive at the stake. But they were willing to do that for Christ. Uh, we can think about the Puritan ministers in London. The Great Plague breaks out. These are men who have been removed by the king from their callings. They could no longer minister. But when the king's time servers, the pastors who bowed the knee to, uh, or rather I should say priests and vicars who bowed the knee to the king, left London fleeing the plague, these Puritan ministers poured in to serve the sick and those who were left behind, unable to leave the city. They served and often they laid down their lives. Why? For the love of Christ and for the love of the gospel. But that didn't end in that age. There's ministers who went out, uh, missionaries, who went out in the 19th century. They used to say they go out taking their coffins with them. 
because to go into certain regions, for instance, of, Af uh, of Africa for a European or an American was a death sentence. They'd be dead of malaria or some other tropical disease within a few years. And yet, there are, and I am not overstating this, millions of African Christians because of them and their efforts. What they did in laying down their lives in the service of Christ, I see it when I go over there. I see even to this day the way that many of those missionaries are still spoken of in veneration. You can go to Zambia and see uh, the, the statue, for instance, of David Livingston, which is still a venerated object. They pulled down all the other colonial uh, you know, conquerors and so on. You won't find anything uh, bearing Cecil Rhodes' name anywhere on the African continent these days. And yet you will still find these men venerated by Christians because they were willing to lay down their lives, to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would urge you to be like Jim Elliott and David Livingston. You remember Jim Elliott's great uh, slogan that he wrote in his, uh, his diary. Uh, I'm sure he didn't intend for it to become as widely known as it was. Elizabeth Elliott, his, uh, his wife, published it after he died. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If we lose our lives to spread the gospel, to show people the love of Christ, to do what we can to build up the kingdom of God, and we lose our lives in the process of doing so, what have we lost? Nothing. We remain more than conquerors, and we have gained everything. I wish we still thought that way. I wish that was more central in our thinking, that we thought of ourselves as soldiers, like Paul, fighting the good fight. I would urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, to regain that spirit of Epaphroditus, of being a soldier for Christ. I'm going to leave you with some words that were written by William Hendrickson. He said this, Epaphroditus is united with Paul, not only in faith and in work, but also in battle. He is a fellow soldier, a companion in arms. A worker must needs be a warrior, for in the work of the gospel one encounters many foes, and he lists the foes of his own time, Judaistic teachers, Greek and Roman mockers, emperor worshippers, sensualists, the world rulers of this darkness, etc., Accordingly, on the part of every worker, there must be prodigious exertion of energy against the foe and unquestioning obedience to the captain, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, in the full assurance of ultimate victory. Think on that. Think on who you serve, the cause that you are fighting in, the way that you are called to fight, and be willing, perhaps even to lay down your life for the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you remain more than a conqueror and that your reward is absolutely assured. Let's go before the one who calls us now. Lord, help us to renew that, that Epaphroditus vision. I'm not going to say dare to be an Epaphroditus, but, oh Lord, help us to be willing to soldier on as he did, to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve him, not by uh, the, the sword and brutality, but through the word, Lord, and the love of Christ. Help us to do that in this city. Lord, uh, Fayetteville needs your word. Help us to not only minister within our families, we know that's our first calling, but also wherever we are, remind us where we stand. That is our mission field. And do we pray, help us to raise up people who are willing to, to carry that, that message of salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to Rayford as well as we seek to establish a church there. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name.